no more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Welcome to another episode of Media and the End of the World. I'm Adam. Uh, I'm Ralph. Thank you for joining us. We're perfectly happy to have you sit out there and let us uh, uh, talk to you about the media world and all of its little permutations for a half hour or so. Uh, we'd be very happy, by the way, to hear any feedback you might have about the the program as it's evolving. Yes, please. They can. The couple ways in which you can do that: leave reviews on the Apple Podcast iTunes Store. That'd be really helpful, particularly five star reviews. Hint, hint. Yeah, this is just like at the car dealership where they say, "Oh, and by the way, when they call you, please give us a ten yeah. out of ten. Yeah, because if we get a nine out of ten, they fire us. Yeah, <laughs> and I will, I will happily read any five out of five reviews, no matter what you say. I will read them. Yeah, word by word. So. And and if you don't want us to do that, you can say that, and we will still acknowledge you and say thank you and mention your name. Uh, at the tail end of a podcast in yes. the future. Tail end's right. Yeah, we're obviously not professionals because we are no. starting <laughs> off with, hey, make sure you like us. Um, yeah. but, but I guess the good news is they can still hear us because the internet is still um, there. It is, yeah. And, and apparently the giants living inside the earth have not come back to claim their territory. <laughs> so, um, I, I, by the way, I'd recommend if you're interested in that kind of story, take a look at uh, At the Mountains of Madness by H.P. Lovecraft, which will tell you that up at the top of the world there's a, a hole and you can climb down into it and you'll find yourself surrounded by six foot tall albino rabbits. Hmm. So whereas most people think that Lovecraft was all about uh, monstrosity, anti-Semitism, and seafood scaring you, there's also the six-foot-tall albino rabbits. So there you go. Yeah, always learning something <laughs> on the pod. Mm -hmm. um, but we, we, it is timely to be thinking about the idea of, you know, can people listen to us? I'm curious if, you know, uh, if, if net neutrality fails with the upcoming vote, we're recording this on a Wednesday, vote to be tomorrow how how high on the priority list is media and the end of the world on the podcast <laughs> right do you have a prediction about what's going to happen in the vote tomorrow you know i think one thing i think people are always surprised but um the way that reddit has been able to mobilize around these issues uh and you know as as much as reddit can be um you know the dark side of the internet the scum of what's what's there there's also ways in which they can be put to good use as well, which is being able to mobilize an incredible amount of people. And I remember seeing last week on Reddit, you know, a, a handful of posts that were specific to uh, mostly channels of states and, you know, in which they could say, you know, my senator has been paid. I think it was in Oklahoma, it was about 55,000 uh, that senators have been paid by people that are trying to destroy net net neutrality. I could be wrong on that. I probably shouldn't be giving out facts like that off the cuff. But that's that's been one thing that's that's I think has had a bigger impact than people think. And I think there's a lot of thought that um you can't play a factor in in either calling congressmen and actually influencing decisions. Uh, whether it's congressmen, whether it's people that are on the board of the FCC. But I think if, for whatever reason, net neutrality comes around, people come out and they do their job 
and um, you know it's a it's a testament to to why democracy can be a, a pretty good thing for the world. There, yeah, there are unfortunately going to be an unending if if it should not get through this time, which I'm actually fairly certain that they are going to kill net neutrality just because of where the FCC is at. And by the time you hear this, if it's more than 24 hours from now, you'll probably know. But even if it doesn't get through, it's not going. It, there there will be continual attempts right. because there is just a lot of lobbying money that's going into essentially trying to create better pathways for profit-making from your broadband service provider. And um, and that's fine if it's a, you know, if it's a uh, level playing field, but unfortunately sort of the core of the anti-net neutrality movement is built around an unlevel playing field. And that's the, the problem is that the, for those of you who may not have heard our discussions about this before, might be new to the net neutrality, just and to bore the rest of you who already know about this, the idea is that an internet service provider needs to basically provide you access to all of the internet at the same rate, as opposed to picking and choosing sites that it might have want to have special favors and work better for you than other sites and therefore um, slow other sites down and, and then create different sort of paywalls essentially for you to get individual sites at different speeds. Yeah. And particularly if you're at a education institution, whether it's K through 12, higher ed, profit, nonprofit, it really doesn't matter. There's, there's something, some kind of effect that might take place, uh, in students ability to access educational materials as stuff has started to move in, in more digital spaces. Um, and that has, you know, impact as, as most of these issues do on those who have the least, those who are in rural areas, be taking a online program somewhere, online courses, if you're not able to, to pay for something like that, you're not going to have the same access to it and on the same, on the other end, companies that are providing this content, if they aren't sort of playing into this payola scheme, they might be, might have slower rates as well. So I think there's lots to be concerned about it on on multiple fronts as a as a consumer as a student to what the effect of this can have. Yeah, I think there's um, <laughs> certainly access questions in the rural environment, but there's also recently a letter published by the. Um, Anthony Marks, uh, who is president and CEO of the New York Public Library, Linda Johnson, president and CEO of the Brooklyn Public Library, and Dennis Walcott, president and CEO of the Queens Library, um, outlining how they feel the move to strip net neutrality could negatively impact the New York area public library system. And the substance of their argument is that through public libraries, which is kind of the the, the, the level playing field access, really interesting to talk to people about how much they understand about what public libraries are because they're socialism, right? <laughs> I mean, basically what they do is, is guarantee that every patron who comes in who follows a fairly simple set of rules has access to what everybody else there has access to. Um, and so um, as they say in their letter, um, the, and, and there, it's based on starting the starting point that 83% of Americans do not approve of the move to kill net neutrality. Um, without the current protections, the already yawning digital divide will be widened, they say in their letter. We know in New York City, millions of families cannot afford broadband access at home. These families are in our branches borrowing Wi-Fi hotspots. We're using our public computers to do homework, pay bills, apply for jobs, or communicate with relatives. For these New Yorkers, the 216 library branches across the city are their only option for access to technology. For the FCC to place Internet access, something that in today's world is a necessity, not a luxury, even further out of reach, is appalling. 
Um, the one thing about the um, statistics about support, and this is something that's kind of a critical media literacy point also, is you really have to look at how the question is framed. Because if you do frame the question, do you want the government to be regulating your access to the Internet? Most people go, well, no, of course not. And then you could, of course, tell them that that's always been the case, that actually it was originally a governmental program run by the Defense Department, and that's kind of where it all came from. Um, but that you're, you know, it, if you frame it that way versus saying, okay, here's your choice, either they're going to regulate it and they're not regulating you, they're not regulating your access, they're regulating the companies that provide the services to you. Right. Then it starts feeling a little bit different and the response can shift. Yeah. So when you were originally talking about the you know, support, uh, one of the things that was interesting in the, remember the PIPA, SOPA days when they were um, essentially doing different versions of, that were kind of variations on the same theme, what it was doing was pulling together coalitions of support, and I think this was in the early 2000s, 2003, 2004, um, where they were pulling together coalitions of people uh, who otherwise might not find themselves on the same side. So you had religious broadcasters, for example, aligning with the um, Electronic Freedom Foundation. Did I get that right? Is it EFA? Is Electronic Freedom Foundation? I'm not sure. Anyway, so, uh, but people who are like basically uh, pro-internet access, all information wants to be free types, uh, who are realizing that, that, um, that, that, Regulatory intervention sometimes is working against the best interests of individuals um, so um, so that some of the way we experience it now would fundamentally change. And I, because of the complications of it, you know, again, it's sort of an issue that people should get involved in. By the way, I did post something about this on the site. Oh, nice. And um, it was amazing. <clears throat> trying to track back so if you found basically if you go into the responses because they all become public record and then you can basically grab the text and then search for it and what you find out is that some of these um, anti-net neutrality texts were being generated by uh, Koch brothers funded organizations mm. yeah they are <laughs> yeah um, and basically so if you go in and look because there were uh, an enormous number of postings and a significant number of the postings as I think we mentioned before on this podcast were actually not coming from the United States they were coming from uh, other parts of the world that you know sort of want to get involved in American public policy debates yeah um, so you know again I think looking at the way questions are framed when you're looking at stats about people's support for the issue and then when you go in to look for the public policy reactions um, there can be you know very interesting kind of differences because what happens is then you have someone like the current chair of the FCC who just comes out and says you know well we've looked at it and people basically support getting rid of net neutrality and it's really not that simple yeah you know I, I do feel like uh, I'm having a day today where my anxiety level is a lot lower than it's been um, before, and I don't know necessarily why that is, and that just that just <laughs> riled me back up. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, yeah. You have to know when it's when it's important to talk about those things, and when it's important to take a step back and say, "Okay, I'm getting very angry, and I need to stop." <laughs> right. But the, th that is one thing that the internet is an endless supply of is stuff to make you really yeah, angry. Yeah, and I th uh, I think it's a good segue to one thing that I was wanting to talk about um, is about a article that Maggie Haberman had in the New York Times. Um, she's the main White House correspondent for the New York Times, and uh, this one came out on December 9th, 
which is called Inside Trump's Hour by Hour Battle for Self Preservation, um, which was interesting. I mean, it's 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 very lengthy. There's a lot uh, to take away from it from the sources that she was able to talk through. Uh, she she's uh, the main byline, but also Glenn Thrush and Peter Baker are also credited with some with some assistance on this article as well. Uh, interesting because I I felt I've been feeling like Maggie's been uh, a little bit under the radar, hadn't published a lot lately, but and she's been on like a tear these last three days. And I'll talk about this article and, and one other one as well. But um, what's interesting and why I wanted to talk about this and, you know, I'll preface this by saying that I try to avoid talking about the president uh, on this podcast for a couple of reasons, you know, getting into the uh, White House politics can be incredibly divisive. There are other things about the media that are that are interesting to talk about, even though the mainstream media um, and I, when I say that, I, I mostly referring to New York Times, Washington Post, cable news, television <clears throat> is just fascinated with Trump. But that's what this article is about is sort of that specific relationship. And and uh, while I like to talk about other interesting things, uh, entertainment, for example, I thought this one was worth talking about because it talks about how what the president's relationship is. Uh, with the news. Uh, and it opens by talking about how he wakes up at 5.30 each morning. He watches CNN for a little bit, then of course Fox and Friends, and then occasionally uh, MSNBC's Morning Joe, uh, which he purposely just watches to sort of fire him up for the day. And it's, <laughs> it's sort of what gets him going. And then of course what we know, you know, because when I, I wake up, um, I already get the nervous feelings of what's the president already tweeted, you know, as he, he, then, he then goes to Twitter uh, to fire off a couple different things and and sort of what you what Maggie sort of lays out is that you know this is this is a man who um is is constantly trying to defend the legitimacy of his presidency whether it's the election itself whether it's the policies um that they're fighting you know uh what she says is that um he sees the highest office in the land much as he did the night of his stunning victory over hillary clinton as a prize he must fight to protect every waking moment and twitter is his escalibur there's other interesting nuggets you know he's he's got a ton of tvs that are on even if they're muted um that he's constantly sort of eyeing what the tickers you know uh what the ticker is specifically on cnn um he's the only one who's allowed to touch the remote you know all these uh all these different rules that he oh dad yeah yeah yeah, exactly if you think about that kind of activity um, there is an there's there's a, and again I think we've hit on this before a little bit here but this idea of pattern recognition that you're not that you're not really I mean if you think about there's two ways that you can absorb the information going on around you which is you can find a topic you can drill down in it you can find out everything you need to know about it you can make a reasonable judgment based on the research that you've done. Um, the other way of approaching it, which is something that the, by the way, and that was the sort of the tradition of how you were a learner in our culture. Um, if I can be this crude about it before the internet (laughs) and then the internet came along and it basically made us into phenomenal, uh, pattern recognizers and, um, William Gibson, he's got a novel called pattern recognition that talks about this issue, that that becomes kind of the currency in the future for people to sort of make sense out of things, but it has a completely different kind of rationale. It's not based on understanding an issue in depth. It's about understanding an issue as it's kind of spreads in a very thin layer across the whole digital environment. And so you go, it's, it's, and that's where like the images of 
surfing and things like that become really important because they do define how you experience it and how you look at things. So, and, and so what's missing in that? Well, there's no history, right? Cause it's really a historical. And if you think about, you know, if you want to make something up as, as our fearless leader does from time to time, you know, the way you keep people from actually tracking accountability on that is you make a new thing up. So you just mm-hmm. keep on moving across the environment at a very shallow level and creating new patterns. And that's also the way he's consuming the stuff. He's looking for patterns of coverage and he's reacting to those in, in, in a kind of a way. Another line in the article is uh, saying that he's leery of being seen as tube glued, a perception that reinforces the criticism that he's not taking his job seriously. And I don't know if you, what you saw, he tweeted uh, in response to this article, but it basically said, you know, the failing New York Times article is wrong. I don't watch a lot of TV, you know, like, which is exactly what I was trying to say is, is it's not only that he does consume a lot of this, at least from the sources that she was able to talk to, um, but that, that he, like he, this deeply frustrates him. And the other thing that was interesting was um, there's a mention of, you know, there was a couple days where not a lot had really passed within the mainstream media that he, that was about him. It was kind of quiet and peaceful. And so, you know, there's, there's some thoughts, at least from some of his aides that he purposely started tweeting stuff to get back into that as well. You know, I mentioned the tweet in which Donald uh, responded to, President Trump responded to uh, the article itself. What was interesting is with the article that came out uh, today, and again, we're recording this on Wednesday, Maggie Haberman wrote about uh, how much the aides were going to be concerned about if Roy Moore lost, who President Trump would blame. And, um, and that oh, w- by the way, you just blew it for people who've been trying to hide from that information <laughs> that Roy Moore lost. Yes. Yeah. Let's, it's... let's just pause for a second. Okay. Go on. All right. <laughs> but here's what I found interesting about that is if you remember at the beginning of his presidency, there was a lot of debate of how should you cover the president tweeting? You know, there was a lot of, should we ignore it? And this was interesting because the article itself is basically showing that, they're preemptively thinking about what is the tweet response going to be and writing this meta story, not just about what the tweet response was, but how people were, were preparing for what he was eventually going to say on Twitter, um, which directly after the re- uh, election was probably one of the more subdued tweets, I said, where he, he sort of made like a I've seen where he made a sort of like an offhanded comment about the write in votes might have been it. But, you know, a win's a win. You know, he came back. Uh, this morning and said, well, you know, this is why I didn't originally endorse him anyways. I knew he was going to lose, yeah. you know, so. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that was perfectly convincing. Yeah. I absolutely yeah. believe that right down the line. But there was a lot of concern of who was he going to blame? Was it going to be uh, General Kelly? Was it uh, going to be uh, Ivanka, you know, who came back against him? And they're like, well, probably not Ivanka because he would never say it against his daughter. I'm, I'm waiting for the punchline that it was actually Hillary's fault. Because oh, he does. Yeah. That's where it's going to go, right? Yeah. And Let's like, oh, and, and I think there. I think it needs to be said because I think part of the part of the effect that that you're talking about that that Hammerman's writing about is is the attention factor. Sure. That we are. You know, when I post, I, I, and I don't know if you do this, but when I post things on Twitter, if I want to to link to something, I won't if it's going to reproduce a picture that of something mm. I so I don't want to reproduce pictures of of the orange man himself if I can avoid it. So I would rather not this is like my version of what you just said. Yeah. I would rather not link to something than actually reproduce another image of that person on my feed. You know, that's interesting. I've had the same feeling about because if you go to Twitter, 
you know, and you might see an article that's not necessarily something tweeted, but it's something someone liked. And for me, or hearted, I think, I don't know if it's still called liked, it's a heart now. Um, but for me, uh, oftentimes I will like something almost as a bookmark, something I want to go back and read later, you know, but, but um, give, insinuating that there's almost this level of endorsement and that my followers may, you know, come in contact with this content mm-hmm. simply because I clicked a button on it and my name is now tied to, you know, whatever the article is, makes me really similarly think about how I'm interacting with pieces on social media. Yeah, the, the one exception to that is the people who will occasionally post a picture and say, the last thing that this person wants you to do is to retweet this picture. Right. So please don't. Right. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> because we have such we have such sort of like, you know, averse behavior built into our internet activity anyway, that becomes part of it. But I thought I mean I think that was an important factor in the in the Alabama election because when you saw coverage of it again, it was usually images of and discussion about Roy Moore and Doug Jones, the the senator elect, was mentioned more or less as an afterthought. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you want to talk about Golden Globes? I do a little bit. There is, for those of you who may have seen the recent uh, Golden Globe nominations, and I should say, uh, as any member of my family would be happy to tell you, um, I find I, I find the whole world of awards to be simultaneously annoying um, and problematic for lots of reasons. Um, keeping in mind that sort of like the the award to beat all awards is the Academy Awards, of course. And we have to remind ourselves that the Oscars were actually a PR scam uh, originally and have become this thing that's become, a, a you know, an important marker of, you know, aesthetic success, even if it's not necessarily connected to financial success or things like that. And let me just parenthetically note that I will be pleased the day that they either get rid of the gender distinction yeah. or explain yeah. it or introduce other distinctions that'd be equally important, such as, you know, about the ability to, to recognize African-Americans, the ability to recognize LGBT performances or something like that, for which there are often other awards and that sort of thing. But um, but so the you know the Golden Globes the nominations came out. Um, I'm you know because I'm an enormous Guillermo del Toro fan. I've written about him. I think he's a, a genius. He's actually looping it around. He's been wanting to make a film version of it, The Mountains of Madness by H.P. Lovecraft, uh. for years, but can't figure out how to do it because it's an enormously expensive project. Although now we are in the era where you can see G.I. six-foot-tall albino sure. rabbits <laughs> in your sleep if you wanted to. They just won't be as horrifying as, as maybe he wants them to be. But anyway, his uh, new film, The Shape of Water, uh, did get uh, the highest number of, of Golden Globe nominations. And I'm very pleased about that. At the same time, I think the Golden Globes are an enormous sham. They're they're hilarious. Um, and perhaps they've changed over time, but my contempt for awards in general was supported by a documentary that was made uh, actually quite a few years ago now in, I think, 2003 called The Golden Globes, Hollywood's Dirty Little Secret, which is an amazingly hilarious documentary about how the Golden Globes and the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, which is behind the Golden Globes, does what they do. Um, and all I need to tell you to explain how to think about the Hollywood Foreign Press Association is that many, many years ago, they thought that the uh, the award for the best actress should go to Pia Zadora in the film Butterfly. Mm-hmm. I think it was in 1984, I think is when it was. And it, and it became clear through that because basically, I'm sure she's a very nice person, but um, 
I'm a better actor than she is. And that's saying that she's not a very good actor. Um, and again, I'm sure she's a very nice person, but it was not an impressive performance. But it was based on how much you wined and dined the members of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. And Pia Zadora's <coughs> spouse or manager or minder at that point was an extremely wealthy film person who wined and dined them and basically bought the award. Uh, and, and one needs to be suspicious of these awards all the time, uh, both from the Oscar or so white point of view on who gets to vote mm -hmm. and whether they've actually seen the things that they're voting for, which is often problematic, again, with the Academy Awards and the documentary category. Um, but anyway, thinking of them, um, and, and we're in an interesting world, so, so they become significant. People pay attention to what wins these awards. It can often have a positive effect on how media properties do financially. So they're significant, but I just think that, again, you know, it's something that we should all think about what does this actually mean yeah i mean i always think one of the the first articles that you see after a nominations list come out is who's been snubbed you know right, right um, yes and uh, and sometimes that's corrected uh, at the academy awards um since golden globes comes out earlier uh but the post was actually completely shut out which was an interesting one because i i think that's a uh a pretty a pretty timely piece from steven spielberg and and that one was surprising um the, so i'm interested in this story right um the disaster artist yeah. <laughs> is gonna get a lot of <laughs> uh nominations um i think got it for best uh best comedy i mean obviously the the whole movie is on the premise of the worst movie ever you know um off the 2003 movie the room so I, why how is that possible it's yeah it's it's sort of like the film ed wood if you remember that because i had a conversation with uh, somebody in the office yesterday about this because the idea it's the worst film ever made i need to be very clear i love bad films yeah I, I, I think there are I, I think that there are because I don't really because I guess I don't believe that good and bad are, are actually very real that mm -hmm. that um, that you know what's bad in one decade all of a sudden becomes the way things are done two decades later or something like that but you know I remember that there was a troll two for example, has this <laughs> reputation. I mean, I think there's a documentary about it called The Worst Movie Ever Made, which pleased me because I actually worked on Troll 1, <laughs> which wasn't called Troll 1. It was just called Troll because nobody thought there would be a Troll 2, <laughs> and there shouldn't have been, but then there was. Um, and then, of course, Plan 9 from Outer Space. Something mm -hmm. about numbers in these seem to have something to do with it, too. But um, Plan 9 from Outer Space, the Ed Wood uh, science fiction epic that was made for about $38 and uh, included a uh, drug adult Bela Lugosi, the uh, incredible horror star Vampira, and Swedish wrestling sensation Tor Johnson. It's an amazing film that has hilarious performances, a hilarious script, and is was considered for a very long time to be like the worst movie ever made. Um, and then a bunch of years passed, Tim Burton comes along and makes a, docu makes a film about Ed Wood called Ed Wood. That, you know, in the same way, it's like what you're saying about this um, this film about the making of The Room. It was a film that made Edward look like a kind of admirable creative person who was making terrible films, and but, but kind of made him charming in a way. And it's kind of the power of what Tim Burton can do when he's, you know, when he's got a mind to do it. Um, but just raises all sorts of interesting questions about, you know, what constitutes a bad film. And what makes people want to pay attention to it in a particular way. I think it's safe to say that The Disaster Artist is the best film about a bad film ever. <laughs>
So one one last little note I wanted to add, okay. by the way, because I asked you about this earlier, and again, it came up in, a, in the context. I had a student come up to me and say, I love choirs. I think choirs are very cool thing. Somebody who was in choir when she was hmm. in school, and we talked about the uh, the Bulgarian women's choirs that became a really big deal in the 1980s because she'd heard them a little bit. And, and then I asked her, by the way, have you ever heard of the complaint choirs? She goes, what's that? And so what I, I and, and just as kind of a joyous little tail end here, I wanted to mention, if you get a chance, just Google complaint choirs and you will find yourself in this very interesting world. And basically there are some rules connected to it. Um, and some of the some of the best ones were actually produced in other parts of the world. They're absolutely hilarious. But if you go to complaintschoir.org, you will find a website where you will see the places that complaint choirs have been done. There's a whole mm. history of them. There's still the the most recent posting is a uh, is one that was done in Vancouver. This goes back actually quite a few years. And to me, the most amazing ones were the ones produced in uh, um, in Finland and then in Birmingham, England. So the idea is this basically. You and a bunch of people who live in the same place start putting together a list of all the things that annoy you about the place that you live. And you just, you know, it's just a list of complaints. The buses are late. The beer's too expensive. There's no good grocery stores in the area. Um, there's all kinds of, like, funny little criticisms about the saunas in the one from <laughs> Finland. So they're they're really interesting. And what happens is those complaints, then, then basically you find a composer who knows how to write music, and they create a piece of music that takes all of those complaints and turns them into an operatic performance. And then the idea is you put together choirs of people who will sing this piece of music in public places, and then you make videotapes of those and put them online. So it, it's just, and, and so it started from one or two places, and there's been now uh, a couple of dozen of these all around the world. And they are, some of the music is fantastic. The performances are great. The videos are, are hilarious. They're much better. They're not, the the American versions of them aren't the best. In other places, mm. they seem to have nailed down a way to do these so that they're that really kind of interesting combination of how much the place that you live in annoys you and how you can turn that into just a marvelous piece of art. So put that on your list of things to do as you're floating into the holiday season. Yeah, maybe some some complaint caroling. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can go from door to door talking about <laughs> how traffic and parking suck wherever you are, and you know that the um, that the local grocery stores don't have enough vegan choices or something like that. But anyway, so this is something to do if you're into the into the world of choirs. This would be some way of seeing just how they're uh, and and they do have kind of a flash mob feel to them. Yeah, and I've always loved the idea. Improv of flash everywhere. Mobs. Right. Also, some I'm, I'm I'm a really big fan of. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, to get in touch with us, as we mentioned at the top of the episode, you can uh, leave us a review on the Apple Podcast Store. You can also email us at media and the end of the world at gmail.com. There's also a contact form on media and the end of the world.com that goes straight to that email as well. Um, it'd be nice to know occasionally that someone's out there. Even just send an email that says subject. I'm listening. You don't even have to say anything. Just, just tell us you're listening. Would be it's, really helpful. it's happened before I've gotten things on Facebook where someone has said, 
um, they were they were actually fondly recalling classes they've taken from us, mm. and so then they listened to the podcast as as kind of a boost. That's so funny. It really is encouraging to to hear that. That would also, I mean, if you're if there are particular issues that you think that require more attention, that's certainly part of what we want to do is is think about this as kind of a toolbox too for how to think about the media world. So if there's something that you think would be an appropriate thing for us to take up and talk about, we'll do that. We will continue to bring in guests who have different levels of expertise. Absolutely. And, uh, and, and diversify the audience. So, because I, I know I'm sick of listening to me and I'm not sick of listening to you yet, but, <laughs> but I am definitely sick of listening to me because I've been doing it for a long time yeah, now. Yeah. Well, you, you'll get sick of me soon. Trust me. <laughs> we'll work up. We'll set that as a goal. That's right. So. All right. Well, thank you guys very much for joining us again, the media and the end of the world. We will catch you again soon. Yeah.